0: Welcome to Call and Character, a podcast for a not-so-casual conversation about calling, culture, and other things that make for lives worth living. My name is Davey Henrikson, and I teach at Valparaiso University and serve as director of the Institute for Leadership and Service, the sponsor of this podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Amanda Zelahusky, a colleague of mine here at Valparaiso. We'll be discussing her insights into mental health and trauma during the global pandemic and delving into the importance of personal growth and development in the world of higher education. Earlier this month, Amanda delivered a virtual lecture for Valparaiso on a similar topic, learning through the pandemic, challenge, opportunity, and grace. We will be posting the video recording on the Institute's Facebook page and Instagram, and at our website, valpo.edu leadserve And now to the conversation. If human beings are fundamentally social, needing companionship and community to flourish, this year's pandemic put many of us to the test. Forced inside for months, separated from friends and family, becoming competent at virtual meetings and webinars, our new, normal, ordinary lives would have been unrecognizable to ourselves just months prior. And in the midst of all this uncertainty, questions about mental health and well-being rose to the surface. Our guest today, Amanda Husky, along with a friend and collaborator, began drawing on her research on trauma psychology to start conversations about the ways that this year has been odd, challenging, surreal, and in some very tragic cases, unhealthy or even lethal to vulnerable members of society. Dr. Zilahusky is a licensed clinical and forensic psychologist and attorney specializing in trauma. She is board certified in clinical child and adolescent psychology and has worked clinically with adults, children, and families. As an associate professor of psychology at Valparaiso University, she directs the Psychology, Law, and Trauma Lab, where she conducts research on the impact of childhood trauma. In addition, Dr. Zelhusky provides training and consultation to numerous mental health, legal, educational, and child welfare agencies. She recently co-founded Pandemic Parenting, a free web platform and webinar series as a way to give psychology away and support parents and those who work with children as we continue to navigate the COVID-19 pandemic. So uh, Amanda, it's really great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. So let's rewind the tape uh, to February or maybe early March of 2020. We'd all heard rumor of this pandemic headed our way, but I'll speak just for myself. I didn't really take it very seriously. We'd had public health scares before and they never came to fruition, at least uh, on the scale of which we've seen over the past seven or eight months. Uh, So as the rumors became reality in the spring. What were some of the thoughts and the concerns that started racing through your mind and how did they lead to your current project at Pandemic Parenting?
1: Yeah, so I, I think I maybe was taking it a bit more seriously than others just because, you know, as you mentioned, my focus and uh, area is trauma and just thinking about things like crises. And this was a crisis coming, a crisis coming our way. So I was thinking about, you know, just selfishly from a personal standpoint, you know, as a working mom of young kids, what's this going to mean? How am I going to do my work if my kid's school gets shut down and they're home 24-7 and I'm having to also be, you know, their new remote learning teacher while trying to get my work done? So I was really worried about that. And, you know, and then again, in, in my area of studying, you know, child maltreatment, just thinking about this is going to get really bad. We are going to have kids that are locked in their homes with parents that are extremely stressed with that stress increasing as we, you know, saw that there were going to be economic impacts of this. Um, So I worried just about safety and knowing that schools for kids are generally a safe haven. And, um, you know, when they grow up in environments that have lots of toxic stress or abuse or neglect, that schools are where they go to be safe, and that it is often the teachers and educational staff that are keeping their eyes on them and giving them that extra care and attention, or, of course, in extreme cases, calling you know child protective services to keep them safe. And so I was really worried about our child maltreatment rates skyrocketing, um, as a result of this. And so, you know, as I thought about that, another thing that was sort of floating through my mind was this is the first time I can really remember in in my lifetime, and certainly in my career as a researcher, that we knew a crisis was coming before it did so in many of these other instances where we studied you know the aftermath of things like 9/11 hurricane katrina school shootings you know we we really could only study what happened afterwards but this was just a really unique situation where we know this is coming we know it's probably going to get bad and so you know, as a researcher, I, I just sort of launched into trying to, to quickly study this, you know, let me collect some baseline data and see where parents and kids are now in terms of their well-being and, you know, follow them over several months, which is what we did in my research lab. And so, yeah, so in terms of how that led to pandemic parenting, you know, we took the summer to start analyzing the data, looking at it and knowing that in, Scientific publication process. I mean, I'll be lucky if that study gets published within a year. That's just how the process tends to go. But I was sitting on this data that could be helpful to people, especially as it started to become clear late in the summer that we were going to enter round two of this. I think lots of us thought that the pandemic would be over, life would hopefully be back to normal, and that most certainly wasn't going to be the case. And so here we're again, parents and kids struggling to figure out should I send my kids back to school? What is this going to mean as far as their health and well-being if I don't, or if I do, and, you know, trying to make all these decisions. So I thought about that and a colleague of mine, Dr. Lindsay Malloy at Ontario Tech University did a similar study. And so I reached out to her and just said, Hey, I think there's a better way for us to get this information out there in, in ways that can be helpful to parents right now while they're trying to make these decisions. And that was in You know, late July Um, and two weeks later, we hosted our first webinar and launched pandemic parenting and have kind of not stopped ever since. And so really, our goal is just to keep putting out free science informed resources to help parents continue to cope with each of these new challenges that come up.
0: So you mentioned uh, the, the awful phenomenon of, of child maltreatment, uh, which mm-hmm. you know deepened through this particular crisis. But I'm also wondering if are there other vulnerabilities in American society that may or may not have to do with parenting uh, that were exposed through the pandemic and and the subsequent quarantine? Another way to put this is: are, are there social problems that we can now see more clearly after months of isolation and social distancing?
1: Yes, I think there's been a lot that has emerged. I mean, certainly mental health, you know, is at the forefront of, of a lot of the conversation. Obviously, our focus in the beginning was physical health, you know, keeping everybody safe and trying to prevent contracting the virus and all those kinds of things. But it became pretty evident fairly shortly into this, uh, into a lot of the state lockdowns and quarantines, uh, how people's mental health were suffering. And, or, and that's continued to be the case. And in fact, there's been some interesting research that, actually after six months of this is when people really started to get worse. So there's this aspect, you know, for a lot of us that we can be quite resilient in the beginning that, you know, yes, I I can do this. Okay. This is going to be different, but I'll sort of rally and we'll figure it out and, you know, I can handle it. But when you do that for a long period of time with the uncertainty about when it's going to end, that's really where I think this started to get difficult for people. Like we can probably do anything if we just know how long it's going to last and when it will end but it is the not knowing and the stamina that that requires that has, I think, had a really big impact on why we're seeing people's mental health really suffer. In addition to the isolation, as you mentioned, I mean, things like social distancing and and just lockdowns and isolation, we know have a significant relationship with increases in things like depression and anxiety and extreme cases, you know, suicidal thinking or suicide attempts. So those are rates that are really concerning right now. So just mental health in general, um, you know, you mentioned some of the maybe social aspects of this and, and vulnerabilities in society. I mean, absolutely. In terms of like uh, working parents, especially working moms, we're seeing them start to leave the workforce in droves because again, without knowing when this is going to end, this is just not sustainable. And because as a lot of the research you know tends to show, moms tend to bear more of the, the brunt of this. And, and that is what we're seeing certainly in the trends related to things like managing remote learning while trying to work from home. And and so for many moms in the workforce, it's just, it's not been worth it, or I just can't sustain this. And so they have left the workforce. So it's just going to have big implications long-term, I think, in, in a lot of different domains. And then social inequities, right? That, you know, where there already were gaps in society and inequities around who receives care, you know, what the economic fallout will be from this. That we're seeing the vulnerable populations—you know, people of color, people of lower socioeconomic status, single parents—you know—that they are being hit much harder. The gaps are increasing pretty dramatically, and so it's just shining a big spotlight on a lot of the social issues we already knew were here, but um, are just even that more blatantly apparent. You know, systemic racism is another—you know—that we're just seeing some of these these social inequities really become pretty glaring.
0: So you've talked a little bit about how you were sitting on this great body of research relating to parenting in moments of crisis and you were able to apply this specifically to the COVID 19 pandemic i'm wondering if you could shift the focus from from your research part of your job to your teaching And I'm wondering, I mean, in obvious ways, COVID has required many of us to figure out and become at least semi-competent with online learning and using Zoom to conduct a a class. But even moving beyond that obvious shift that many of us have had to make, I'm wondering, has the phenomenon of of COVID-19 itself and the quarantine and the social distancing and the isolation changed the way that you teach in the classroom virtually or in person?
1: Yes, it's, it's absolutely changed the way I teach. But I would also even say before that, the way I have taught previously influenced, um, you know, this project and these efforts. So I, I spent quite a bit of time in my different classes historically, trying to really impress upon students the importance of giving psychology away, giving the science away. You know, we are, are so privileged um, to even be having access to this kind of education. And, and I try to help our students really see that, you know, that, that actually m- most people don't have access to the kind of information and education that they do. And so what is our obligation, you know, from a social justice perspective to get information out there to people who can use it. And, and that's often how I will teach about my research. Like why do I do this research and who is it for? And so if it's not getting into the hands of people who need it, then, you know, really what's the point. And so in a lot of my classes, they do projects that are often about giving the information away, finding a way to do community outreach or whatever that looks like. So because that has always influenced my teaching, of course, it then influenced, you know, and inspired, I better practice what I'm preaching. And and so that's kind of was the catalyst for a lot of this, but then, you know, the reverse. So how have aspects of COVID-19 and this project changed the way I teach? I think it's just been all of my classes are online this semester, um, which, you know, to be honest, there there are pros and cons to that. I'm very thankful for the flexibility because I have young kids who have been cycling in and out quite regularly between, you know, being quarantined um, versus being able to be in person in school. And so I have appreciated the flexibility in getting to teach online, being able to do that. But the flip side of that is, I really miss my students. I really miss my colleagues. I miss seeing everybody across campus. Um, I tend to be more of an extroverted person. So to not have that in-person connection has actually been really draining and hard. and, And I have to work three times as hard, I think, in the online virtual space to build connections. But so that very need for connection, just knowing that from a mental health perspective, from a psychological perspective, we know that that's what people are needing right now in this time of significant isolation has influenced so much of my teaching. Um, So things like, you know, if if I'm canceling class or we have sort of a flex day with class, like I always still tell the students, you know, I'm still going to be here on Zoom. You use the time to work on your project if you want or, you know, do some self-care, whatever, but I'll still be here in case you need me. And every time I have done that in any class, there are students who show up and that I guess shouldn't surprise me because it is people just want to connect. And they don't even really have questions. They just want time to connect with somebody in a live, interactive way with somebody who, you know, is there to support them and, and help their journey. And so those have been some of the most rewarding conversations I've had uh, over this semester, because it's just a reminder that we all need connection right now, but we have to get creative about how to do that. So so that's been a difference in in my teaching is being intentional about creating time and space to allow students to connect, even though we're behind these screens, but also just compassion. Like, I, I think I'm usually a pretty understanding instructor, but this semester, wow, that just, it feels like tenfold across the board. Um, my giving them grace and flexibility when they need it as they continue to be tested and sick and quarantined or dealing with family members or stressors. I mean, there's just so much weight they're carrying right now. But the reverse, that they have shown me lots of grace, too, because I've had to cancel things. I mean, I can't, I've never had as many revisions to our course schedule or syllabus as I have this semester because we just have to keep rolling with it. So so as much as I can model that grace and flexibility and compassion for them, I receive it back tenfold, I think, from them. So a lot of those things have, have been influencing my teaching.
0: The theme of of mental health and well-being is obviously a through line throughout all of this. And at the beginning of this semester, uh, I knew I was teaching a class of core students. And at the very beginning, I set aside the last week, which uh, is this week, essentially, to give them readings on mental health and well-being and and wholeness. So I'm going to hat tip just a few authors because they've been really useful in class this week. Uh, The first. One we read was from Chuck DeGrode, who's a pastoral theologian up at Western Theological Seminary. He uses Brene Brown and Augustine, pretty diverse mm. sources to talk about shame and anxiety. And then yeah. Tish Harrison Warren, uh, we read uh, about ordinary routines that can help to center and ground us. And then just today we read Makoto Fujimura, who's this amazing award-winning artist who also writes elegantly on the importance of cultivating beauty, he says, to feed our souls. So I've never done this before. Uh, but it was a nice coincidence because our campus closed this week and students are, on top of all the other stresses of finals and, and semester ending, are now packing up and going home unexpectedly. Yep. But yeah. I want to ask you, uh, what place should mental health and well-being have in college coursework and syllabi? I mean, beyond, say, a department of psychology, is there a place for the psychological and, and perhaps we could even call it the spiritual in a decidedly intellectual context like the classroom
1: yes absolutely I don't I think it doesn't matter what discipline you're teaching I mean we are we are teaching whole people that is you know what we're what we're focused on as an institution and, and it should be at the center of a lot of what we do is just thinking about this isn't just the substantive content that's not the only reason our students are coming to receive this education and in fact there are many times I argue that that is just one piece of it there are so many different components to their undergraduate or graduate school experience. So I think we have to be intentional about it. It's one thing to say, you know, oh, yeah, I, I, I want our students to do well and I want them to be healthy and, you know, well-adjusted and all those kinds of things. But it's, a, it's another to really be intentional about the type of tone you set, you know. So, for example, this semester, I had seen a, a great example from Andrew Hess, um, who is a, a professor, and he put, you know, sort of put out examples of his statement that he includes in his syllabus um, that was called something like, you know, learning in a pandemic or, or something along those lines. And it was just such beautiful language that I adapted in, in different ways and, and just appreciated him sort of setting the tone for let's include this stuff in our syllabus. Let's be clear, remembering that our syllabi are our contracts with our students. And so we're contractually obligating ourselves in this context then to say, I, I see you. I understand that there is so much added stress right now. I am here to support you here's what i would like you to know about how i'm going to support you and that i encourage you to be open and in dialogue with me about how you're doing and and if there are adjustments we need to make because of circumstances in your life right now and i had so many students reach out and just say i really appreciated seeing that in there i've never seen anything like that you know like it's so i think it's one thing for us to say on the first day hey you know just want you to know i'm i'm here i'm happy to support you let's we understand that there's a lot going on and it's another for them to to see that in writing as my promise to them. And and similarly, my ask of them, which is, you know, stay in dialogue with me about this. Let me know how I can help. So that's, you know, one example of, again, it had nothing to do with the particular course I was teaching. It was just, hey, this is a tone I want to set from the very beginning, that we are all navigating this together. I don't know how it's going to turn out this semester. You don't either, but we're going to keep figuring it out together. So I think making space for those conversations, for that you know, just intentionality about the kind of tone we are setting makes all the difference in the world. Um, Yeah. And and so, I mean, some of it I've been thinking about, you know, in in our recent conversation in the Pathways talk around what does a trauma-informed university look like? What does trauma-informed teaching and learning look like? Um, I spend a lot of time teaching about trauma-informed care in different contexts. But we don't tend to talk about it as much at the university level. There's lots of discussion about this for elementary and high school levels, um, but trauma-informed universities, I mean, that's sort of a new concept because we tend to think like, oh, they're adults, you know, they maybe don't need as much, but boy, right in the middle of a global crisis, they sure do. And what are we doing as an institution to meet them where they are? And not just our students, but faculty and staff and administration as well. How are we supporting Whole people, whole institution, because, you know, one of the things we know in trauma-informed care is that when an individual or in our case, an organization or a system is traumatized, it loses its ability to be creative, to generate solutions because we're, we're in survival mode. And so that goes for individuals, but it certainly also goes for entire systems.
0: I want to build on this a little bit because in my own field of religion and ethics over the past couple decades there's been a shift in focus from the purely intellectual or or rational component of education that you know just sort of instilling ideas transferring data to students mm-hmm. to considering the ways that human beings are you know well embodied we're not just brains on a stick as the author James K A Smith once put it we are bundles of passions and loves and desires. And your discipline probably looks on this this late-breaking development in the humanities and thinks, well, duh, obviously this (laughs) is the case. But I wanted to ask you about the academic advantages of considering the whole person, as you were just talking about, not just the intellectual and rational faculties, as if we're just transferring data to the students. How might this shift in focus to the embodied nature of human beings help us form our students in the classroom? And if you have specific practices that you employ, I would I'd love to hear about them as well.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, yes. And in the field of psychology, we, we certainly have long thought about, talked about, I mean, gosh, it dates way back before us, right? Into some of the earliest philosophers around the idea of the mind-body connection and, and sort of you know, what it means to to be educated, to take in, in knowledge and, and how that shapes our identities in different ways. And so I think, yeah, we, we think a lot about our roles are not just to, as you said, you know, impart knowledge to hand this over to them and, you know, see what our students do with that. It, we're in a process together, you know, an, an exploration and a learning together. And one of the reasons I love teaching Um, college students so much is because of this developmental stage. It's such a fascinating stage of development. They are, for most of them, the first time away from home, they're starting to separate their own identities from that of, you know, their parents or their families or their hometowns, you know, and and figuring out what their own identities are. Who is it that I want to be? What do I believe about the world? Um, What do I want to do moving forward? What is going to be my mark that I make on this world? You know, all these kinds of things that are such important, you know, sort of big questions. And everything they're learning in the classroom, of course, you know, feeds into that, helps them figure out, you know, what are my interests? What do I want maybe to be my profession or my vocation or my career? Um, but it's about who they're going to become. And we get to have a role in that. I mean, what a privilege Like that I get to walk with you for ju- this really important part of your journey, even in a small way that I might get to have a hand in you figuring out who it is you're going to be in the world. Um, So when I think about our, our role and the whole person, it isn't just about, you know, here is, are these lecture notes? Here is this exam. I want you to write this paper. It's what is the role I play in their own development of the whole person and vice versa. They're all a part of my journey in different ways. As I keep evolving as a teacher, a scholar, um, a, a clinician in my case, a parent, a friend, a colleague, you know, they help to shape and, and teach me so many things too. And so we get to have this part in each other's journey. And so one of the things that I really love, obviously in, in my discipline is the focus we have on the mind and, but also it's connection to physiology and, and vice versa. And so, you know, we carry so many of these stories of our experiences. And, and again, in, in my area of specialty, in our crises and in our trauma, we carry those in, in our DNA, in the fabrics of our being. But, but there are so much fascinating research about how things like inner, you know, trauma can be passed down through generations, cultural values and systems and beliefs and practices get passed down, but there are physiological ways that happen. So one of my you know, former mentors, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, used to talk about and does talk about um, the whole idea that you know, your body keeps the score. And so I I have just always loved that characterization of how our our bodies carry so much of our stories and, and vice versa. And so at this time, you know, of course, right now where we're in the middle of thinking about our physical safety in the middle of a pandemic, but also our mental health and well-being, that those things feed into each other and interchange so much. And so our role as, you know, faculty and supporters of students right now is, is around, this isn't just about you passing the test. Like what else is happening for you? And there are reasons you're not able to concentrate right now. Your your body is carrying so much stress. And when we're in survival mode, you know, the executive functioning parts of our brain and our ability to concentrate starts to shut down. And here's why that's happening. So no, you're not a bad student. I know that a semester ago or a year ago, this would have been no problem for you. So let's, let's not focus on, on you feeling like your identity is in question right now because for whatever reason, you just can't hang like you used to be able to do. And so let's not beat ourselves up about that. Let's instead try to understand it. So I, I feel that that's been a lot of, of my role in helping them to think about their whole person, not just these fragmented aspects of, of self.
0: So let's move the discussion of survival notes from the personal up to the institutional now. Uh, we both work and teach at an institution that like many In higher education is going through a a rather difficult season. We've seen some colleagues lose their jobs, departments have shuttered, and many educators across the country really, not just here, were forced to reevaluate what is really central to our chosen vocation in the classroom. So I want to ask you a difficult question. Is college worth it? And can we still ask our students to spend four years of their life studying ultimate questions about the purpose of human life and activity when so many of us feel like we're living in what you describe as survival mode.
1: Yeah. Hmm. That is a difficult question, (laughs) but I don't think my, my answer has changed. And in some ways, I mean, so you started with, you know, is college worth it? Like that's a big question. And there's so many different ways to slice it. It depends, you know, from whose perspective, uh, how we're defining worth, (laughs) you know, what that means. Is it process versus outcome? I'm a big process person. And so it, it isn't always in my mind, in m- many cases, it's not about the bottom line or the specific outcome. I think that is what we so value in a college education is that it is so, just as much about the process as it is about the income. It's about the, or the outcome, excuse me. It's about the 14 weeks of journeying in a course to learn and wrestle with, you know, complicated content just as much as it it is or might feel for that student about their final grade. And so, you know, when we think about, yes, we are in survival mode in many ways. A lot of our institutions are struggling. A lot of our students are struggling. But many of the students I've talked with over the last eight months, especially, you know, their ability to remain in college and remain a part of this community in whatever form that looks like, is their lifeline, you know, is what's helping them survive. It is that community. It is feeling like I'm working towards something. I have a purpose. Um, I have hope about what will be next. I get to still wrestle with these questions and, you know, my, my identity in some ways is still intact and hasn't been taken away, even if it looks a little different the way I need to attend college right now. So when I think about, you know, whether it's, it's worth it, so much of it depends on what this process and this journey look like for you. You know, there's no way for us to talk about this without thinking about, you know, thinking back to some of those social inequities and financial considerations and economic stressors. You know, some of our students have had to take leaves of absence um, or, you know, withdraw from courses because they're needing to take on a part-time job or help younger siblings, you know, with their remote learning, step it up at home in different ways and and helping their families. And they, they just can't stick with it in the way that they had previously when they didn't have those added responsibilities. So for them right now, that's the choice they need to make to survive through this. And, and I, I think those are hard choices to make, but the right choices for them to make, Um, you know, for others, as I said, this is their saving grace. This is their safe Haven and it is where they know um, they are investing right now in the hope for a better future for a different future for them or their families. And so um. So yes, we're in survival mode. That is important to acknowledge and exist. There's lots of grief. There's lots of loss. But, but both things are possible. I can both be feeling in survival mode, feeling loss and, and stress, and still actually be able to, to thrive in this environment or at least get out of the process many things that I need right now in order to continue surviving. Um, but it's such an individual question, I think, for, for each person, and it's something I know a lot of us as... As faculty um, have had to be walking with our students as they've had to make very difficult decisions. And so have we and our colleagues in different ways too about what is priority, what fires need to be put out right now, what is a nice to have versus a must have as far as our work and, you know, just kind of keep doing the next right thing.
0: So we've been talking about some other difficult questions and I, I wanted to end as I usually do with uh, one that's hopefully a little more hopeful or, or uplifting. So I, I wanted to ask mm-hmm. you, Amanda, are there two or three people and uh, who are alive now kind of generally in your area, this is a pretty broad question, that you think are worthy of honor. They're worthy of uh, attention or their 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 work or their lives are somehow exemplary and yet you'd want to lift them up as examples of, the sorts of people who are living lives worth living—they're doing something meaningful with themselves. Who would they yeah.
1: be? Okay. So this was this is a really hard question. There are so many people I'd like to say, and in some ways, it's also right. You know, like the the pressure to identify my my top ones um, because I've had so many exemplars in many different aspects of my life. But when I think about you know, yes, who do I look up to and? sometimes model aspects of my life or professional work after. Um, one that comes to mind immediately is Dr. Bruce Perry, who is a you know, world-renowned child psychiatrist and trauma expert. And he embodies for me, um, you know, doing the work, being willing to get in and do the messy work of working with, in, in his case, you know, some of the most traumatized children and, and stories you'll, you'll ever hear. But he and his team and the work that they have done now for decades of really trying to to understand. And and as I said, get in and do the hard work and the heavy lifting, but to also write about it and talk about it in a way that makes it accessible to all of us. So he wrote a book called The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, who in that book changed the trajectory of my career to make me really sort of wake up and pay attention to why we aren't focusing on on trauma in, you know, in my world in forensic settings and, and juvenile justice facilities and jails and prisons. And so, but his ability to write about really difficult and complicated science in a way that everybody in the mainstream can understand and empathize with. And it, they're like rallying cries in there for parents and, you know, mental health professionals and teachers. And so he's just, and he's one of the most generous, Scholars I've ever had the privilege to to know and work with. He's very generous with his time, um, no matter how busy he is, and in, in terms of always trying to to be helpful. So he's one um, that immediately comes to mind. A second one is Dr. Ali Matu, who is a psychologist. Um, who really has also sort of issued a rallying cry over many years around this idea of giving psychology away. And he's, you know, got a wonderful YouTube show called the psych show. And he, he is a clinical psychologist himself. And I think just does a really incredible job of, of showing what he means and of teaching other psychologists how to do that. That, that, you know, he ta- often talks about um, psychology is really hard to access and that's bad for everyone. So one of the things that I I just have always really appreciated about Dr. Matu is how he not only demonstrates himself, you know, here are different ways to give psychology away, but he puts out lots of resources for other psychologists on how to do that. When people don't know where to start, but they want to be helpful and they want to disseminate the psychological science in in better and more accessible ways. He teaches us how to do that. And so I really appreciate um, that he's somebody who really just sort of, you know, lives precisely what it is he's, he's preaching. And that's been an inspiration for me for a long time and somebody that I try to model some of my outreach and dissemination efforts after. So the last, I guess, example, when I have thought about your question of, it's, so it's maybe an unorthodox answer, right, of, of an exemplar, that merits our attention, you know, in my area of study, that leads a life worth living. Um, My biggest exemplar in my work is children, um, is what we can learn from children in their ability to be curious and explore the world, their ability to be resilient in the face of enduring so much. Um, I think we need to do a lot more paying attention to kids and listening to kids, truly listening to kids instead of thinking we know what they think and experience and will say or do. You know, one of my mentors taught me that children's behavior almost always makes sense given an understanding of the context in which they develop. And so children have a lot to teach us and they sure do a heck of a lot better of a job dealing with some of these social justice issues like, you know, anti-racism and inequities and empathy. Than a lot of their grownups, and so I, uh, uh, children to me are honestly the biggest living exemplar that I keep trying to learn from, and hope that I never stop learning from kids.
0: Well, thanks so much, Amanda, for joining us today. I want to just kind of plug uh, your talk, which you mentioned briefly during the, the interview, uh, which you gave for Valparaiso University earlier uh, this month, called Learning Through the Pandemic, Challenge, Opportunity, and Grace. It was part of our Pathways to Purpose lecture series. We will have that audio and video up shortly. In fact, maybe before this podcast is actually released, but be on the lookout for that on our social media and also on our webpage, valpo.edu slash lead search. So, Amanda, thank you once again. It's been a real delight. Thank you for joining us for the lecture earlier this month and also for this really wonderful, informative conversation.
1: Thank you. And thanks for the work that you all are doing at the Institute. Thanks for listening to Call in Character, a podcast from the Institute for Leadership and Service at Valparaiso University. If you have any feedback or questions, follow us on the Institute's Facebook page or send an email to lead.serve at valpo.edu. Our production team includes Aaron Morrison and Kim Neiman. Please subscribe to Call Calling Character on iTunes, Spotify, and other places podcasts are found. And leave us a comment and a rating. Until next time.